This episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Rebel Riot Printing. Celebrating their 10th year in business, Rebel Riot is locally owned and family operated, offering custom printed tees with no minimums and fast turnaround. And by Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code. Real JavaScript, real devices, and really fun. Hands down the most fun way for curious kids ages 6 to 14 to learn coding. Use promo code DETOX for $20 off any subscription order of $50 or more. That's D-T-A-L-K-S DETOX for $20 off any order of $50 or more with Bitsbox. Freedom, 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 yeah. What's up, everybody? This is Joe Shaw with the host of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. As I said, I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I speak to Chris Walsh, the Senior Program Manager of the Human Freedom and Women's Initiative at the George W. Bush Institute. Center, Institute, they're interchangeable. We get into that on the show, but I had a really great sit-down chat with Chris, and we talked about a lot of different topics, freedom being one of them. Chris has an amazing and interesting job at the Bush Institute, and we get into that, and we get into all the great work the Bush Center, see, I'm using them interchangeably, uh, is doing for... Uh, individuals here in America and abroad. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So stick around. I'll be right back with Chris after this. Welcome back to the Detox Podcast. With me at this time is Chris Walsh, the Senior Program Manager of the Human Freedom and Women's Initiative at the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Did I get that correct? You got it all right, unless oh. you want to call it the Bush Institute. But Okay, well, Bush Institute, Bush... Uh, all right, let's do potato, it. Potato, potato. Potato. You say tomato, <laughs> I say potato. So there we go. All right, <laughs> Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. It's a great uh, opportunity to be here and talk with you. I am really excited about this episode. First of all, because we're recording at the actual Institute... Center, on location. On location. And I'm super excited about that because I've never been here. It's been on my bucket list to check it out ever since it was finished. So this was a perfect opportunity and reason. And furthermore, because I think there's a lot of really good content to talk about with you about freedom and about parenting and just a lot of different perspectives. So first of all, one of the questions I want to ask that I always like asking parents that come on the show is what do you think makes a good parent? It's really tough. I mean, there's, there, <laughs> I feel like there's no, there's no good answer for that. Right. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lay some of my cards on the table okay. and say that I'm, I'm kind of a horror movie nerd. Ooh. Okay. Very and nice. uh, in particular, I like uh, zombie films. Ooh, I don't know what yes. about that it connects to the human freedom side of stuff. It's maybe society falling apart <laughs> and how do we get it back together? Exactly. I think so. I think so. But <laughs> judge how you will, but that's, that's what right. I'm thinking. Um, but there's a, there's a character in a remake of, um, uh, Dawn of the Dead, mm -hmm. essentially, uh, and he's the main character. And, and you know, they're they're talking about what did you do before, and he goes through a list of kind of these these different jobs and odd jobs. And he says, but I think the the thing I was best at being is a dad, and that always kind of resonated with me. Even mm -hmm. I think before I became a parent, sure. Uh, 
but I, I think I fully understood what it meant when, when my, my first child was born, uh, first of three, my son. Um, it, it's, it's, I know it's cliche to say it's indescribable, but it's, a good parent is just someone who's there for their kids, who's making right. good people to be there after they're gone. To, right. uh, and at least that, that's kind of what I hope my, my legacy will be with my kids, that I've taught them the right way to treat people, the right way to act, to let them know that they're loved, they're valued, um, and that they should be, they should be uh, basically giving what they get. Right. Exactly. I think it's very difficult as a parent sometimes to know, am I, am I, is something resonating? Is it taking home? Am I, am I giving them the best qualities? Am I making sure that they're set up for success? And then there's little moments where you see them. Uh, I've got uh, two little ones, my four-year-old daughter, my two-year-old son. And there's, there's times where I, I, just the other day I saw them, they were playing together. They were starting to get upset. My son like tripped and fell and was crying and I was about to head in the other room and she just walked over and said, what's wrong? What's going on? He pointed to his knee. She was like, it's going to be okay. And she gave him a big hug and, and they sat together and they talked through it and then they got up, you know, wiped the, wiped his tears off and went back to playing. I was like, oh, I think, I think they're okay. I, I think, they're not fragile. I right? think yeah. the kids are all right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's always resonated with me that to that, you know, in those little moments you're able to tell like, okay, I think, I think they're going to be all right. I think, I think we're on the right track. And so I think it's good. Um, one of the things I want to talk about with you is I want you to walk the, myself and the listeners through the Human Freedom Initiative. Uh, what's the overall goal of it? How did it come about? And what's some of the work that you've personally overseen? Right. Well, let me, let me take a quick step back. Sure. Let me do the commercial quick in terms sure. of the entire Bush Institute. Of course, because of it's, it's more than just a Human Freedom Initiative. Sure. Um, we have what we call three impact centers. The first is global leadership, which is where I work. It includes our Human Freedom Initiative. It includes our Global Health Initiative. And it includes our Women's Initiative. Um, and again, these are all focused more on, on uh, foreign affairs. Sure. We also have what we call domestic excellence. So that includes our programs that work with post-9-11 vets, uh, helping them. Um, we have our education reform, our economic reform program, um, our economic growth program, which also deals a fair deal with uh, immigration issues. Um, and we have what we call our... I guess you call it an engagement uh, impact center where we're going out to the local community. If we have, we always have lots of interesting people coming through these doors. So uh, if they have some extra time, you know, either they're, they're doing a strategic podcast, which is our, <laughs> which is one of our ways that we get our messages out there yep. and introduce people to the things that we're doing here. Or we have an event down in our auditorium that's open to the public um, that you can register for. So that's always pretty interesting. But your question was about human freedom. Um, so I started here actually before the Bush Center was or was a building. It okay. was uh, it was midway through construction. We were across the street at called uh, at uh, SMU was our Southern Methodist University was right. very kindly letting us use their expressway tower, and that's where we were officing. So I would I would look out the window and I would see the construction progress. I was like, I can't wait till we get to that building. Sure, yeah. Um, and it did not disappoint when we got here. But our, our Human Freedom Initiative since that time has, has gone through some different stages. Uh, I think when we were finding our ways, because we're, we're still a fairly young organization, mm -hmm. um, so that's something to keep in mind. But as we were finding our way, my first job here was doing something called the Freedom Collection, which I thought was a really, it is a really cool project. Um, you can find it at freedomcollection.org. What, what it essentially is, is it's an arch video archive, uh, uh, oral histories, of freedom activists, uh, democratic leaders from around the world telling their stories about what they did, why they craved freedom, uh, how they might inspire others. 
Um, and so that was that was my first job here, and I thought it was really cool. You that know, is I, really cool, yeah. Um, so I, I got a chance to meet folks from Poland Solidarity Movement back in the 80s that helped yeah. topple the Soviet regime, right. uh, leaders from Burma, from North, North Korean refugees mm-hmm. who have just unbelievable stories to tell about what it's like to have to live in the opposite of freedom right and i know and and not to even cut you off there but i know that you if i recall correctly you did an interview with one of those people that escaped that escaped from north korea is that correct that's correct okay and and i mean peeling back the curtain a little bit on on myself i'm always fascinated in reading personal accounts of north korea because of the fact that it's so shrouded in secrecy or has been for so long Right. right and i think part of that is it seems so foreign um, and, and I mean that in the sense that it seems so like, like, like you're reading a book and you're like, this type of place would never exist. Right. right. That's, that's the kind of thing that I mean. And I, I've listened to perspectives about athletes that have gone on tour and the, and the, and, uh, reporters from CNN or other outlets that have gone to, to shoot documentaries and, right. and the, the type of North Korea that is presented is very, um, it's very much the same each time from each of these accounts, right. depending on whether it's the nineties, the two thousands or the, the tens. And I think it's so critical when you have these firsthand accounts of people who have escaped that say, that is the facade that's put on. This is what it was really like. So can you kind of talk me through? And I know that those, the individual I'm specifically thinking about, it's still, the identity is still anonymous because they could still, their family or their relatives or whoever could still be uh, in danger if their name were to get out. So talk me through what it's like working with these individuals and getting their story and, and their perspectives when they are able to get out of North Korea. I mean, it's, it's, it makes you so grateful for what you have. Sure. And and the things you know, obviously people have frustrations and they get they get uh, you know there's annoyances of daily life and there's real life issues about how do we put food on the table you know got to get to work got to take care of our kids raise them right, but this does make you appreciate how good you have it when you've met some of these folks. And I apologize, I know I've been meandering about from, no, from no, different no, story no, to story. Good. I like it. But um, let me actually tell you about a guy who's actually working here. Sure. Now um, he's actually I'm cloud, I'm proud to call him a, a colleague and a friend. His name is Joseph Kim. Yes. Uh, and he's really actually factored, factored into my parenting, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But Joseph escaped um, from North Korea when he was a young boy. He was among one of the first refugees to come to the United States. Wow. Um, but essentially, his, his, he lost his, his mother and his father uh, and his sister. Uh, they had gone, his sister and mother had actually gone into China uh, because uh, for a great period of time, uh, they call it, I think it's the, the Great March, or it's, it was a period of famine, essentially. Okay. Um, where, where people were starving. Uh, and so they would go into China looking to find food. And when they go into China, uh, it's, it's kind of this eye-opening experience. Now, sure. now let's, be, let's be very clear. Right. China is not a utopia. China, right. if you look at some of the watchdogs who monitor democracy and freedom right. issues, is among one of the least free places on earth. But right. North Korea is so much less free that when right. they went to China and saw the wealth and the people eating as much food as they wanted, it was, right. it was unbelievable. So, sure. It's, it's, a, it's a very troubled journey. It's, you have to cross, uh, there's different ways you can go, but uh, most go through what they call the, uh, the North Korean Underground Railroad. There's, oh, no, wow. there's no direct path. Sure. But that's essentially what they call it, where you uh, probably cross a river to get, in, uh, to get into China. Now, uh, especially nowadays under Kim Jong-un, mm-hmm. the current leader, um, uh, essentially uh, it's a shoot to kill order if you oh, see someone wow. crossing the border. So okay. you're risking your life if you go into China trying to escape or, or to find food and come back. Sure. 
Um, was that not the case previously? What was it like some, under the previous leaders? Uh, it was terrible, but there was there was a little more uh, relaxed. And but when Kim Jong Un comes okay. to power, you do see a dip in the number of refugees that are escaping, uh, okay. where they mainly go to South Korea. Gotcha. But essentially, do they mainly go to South Korea now. Is that what you're uh, it, if, today if, as well? If they if they do get out, that's typically that's typically the path they're okay. going to take. Now now some do come to the United States, sure. but South Korea is probably the easier path. If sure. you're talking about, they okay. speak the same language. There's yeah. lots of programs dedicated to helping. Uh, North Koreans reintegrate into Korean society sure. or South okay. Korean that society. But Joseph had had uh, gone to look for, he was, he was essentially homeless on the streets, uh, dirty, hungry, looking for food, and decided he was going to go find something to eat. But he gets to China, he gets in, onto this underground railroad uh, where he finds missionaries uh, who helped him to find food, to take care of him. Now, just because you found a missionary or you have someone who you may have hired to, to take you across right. uh, the border and, and to find a safe haven does not mean you're safe. Um, because some of these, these uh, brokers, as they're called, who try and get you across the border uh, are unscrupulous. Sure. Uh, they, yeah. they could trade you into the sex trade, which is unfortunately the plight of many North Korean girls or women who, who escape. Um, but Joseph was lucky. Um, I mean, as lucky as you can be in that sure. situation. He eventually... Um, uh, was able to escape to an American consulate. He came here and he uh, found a foster family in Richmond, Virginia, uh, went to high school, got an education, um, and, and he actually just graduated from Bard College in New York wow. and has joined our team here. So when, so he got out, so he went to high school here in, in America. When did he get out of North Korea? How old was he? I want to say, I, I, I apologize, I don't okay. know the exact, uh, the exact age, but he was in his teens, as I okay. recall. I, I want to say early teens, about young, 12 or Young so. enough to be able to go to and then graduate high school in, in America and then go to college. That's, that's fascinating to me. I'm just thinking about like, you know, where I was when I was that age, and I right, would exactly. not have been able to make a journey like that. No, I know. So let's be honest. <laughs> it's amazing. It's, it's really amazing. It's, it's a testament to the human spirit of yes. people, things that drive us. Right. And, and sometimes we think about freedom as the ability to make you know, any choice we want or right. with responsibility and sure. uh, of course, but, but it's interesting when I've talked to some North Korean refugees, because you came from a place that had no concept of what freedom was, um, you alluded to it, you know, to think differently, to speak differently could get you into a political re-education camp or a concentration camp right. and up to three generations of your family could be punished. Um, but they would say food, you know, the ability to get food that I wanted was wow. my concept of freedom at that time. That wow. was innate. But that's that's how they understood it. Yeah. Um, but but I just want to say uh, yeah, sorry yeah, quickly yeah, yeah. is that sure. is that Joseph um, and our, you know kind of our friendship with him and he's become a great friend of my family uh, has been a way to talk about issues with my with my kids that that you know kids have to be kids I I'm all sure. for maintaining their innocence um, and, and giving them some time to like I said right, be kids right. before we break their spirits right. with the weight of the world right. but but. Um, I tell them about Joseph and what he went through. And again, like we talked about it earlier, to be grateful for what you have and what Joseph went through. Right. And trying to put that in terms that a child can understand is really difficult. So sure. we'd say, you know, the president of North Korea, even though he's not a president. Right, but it makes you know, it into terms they can understand. Exactly. Sure. And, here's, and here's what Joseph struggled to do. And so that he could be in a place like this where he could make his own choices and pursue the life that he wanted to be and, and, and try to be happy. And so, <laughs> because you never know what kids are going to say. The first time right. they met Joseph, right. I was like, okay, I know we've talked a lot about Joseph, but if you could just, just be very kind and let's, right. not, let's not make Joseph feel bad with any <laughs> probing questions. Right. So Joseph, <laughs> Joseph is walking with my with my youngest, and she looks up at me and she says, "Don't tell me about your life." So that was her <laughs> response. <laughs> but Joseph thought it was funny because he's he's a very good natured, humble guy. Right. Um, 
But I think it's important yeah. to, to be able to find ways for right. kids to connect to these these issues that they'll deal with and yeah. and, and face when they, they get older. Yeah, no, that's very that's very key. And so I think that kind of kind of leads me into another point I, I would like you to expand upon is so your children know that you work here and they know the type of work that you're doing with the focus on the Freedom Initiative and. And they've met Joseph as well. So yes. how do you, um, what are the, the age ranges of, of your kids? So they, the youngest is four, okay. the middle is six, and the, the oldest is nine. Okay, perfect. So within that age range, how are you able to effectively kind of teach them democracy and freedom and, and how important it is here in America mm-hmm. versus the world? And then specifically the work that you do, how much are you sharing or how do you carry that across? Mm-hmm. How important that is to you? So, uh, okay, let me answer this with another story, <laughs> sure, yeah. kind of meandering. But l- yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, let me go back to kind of my childhood. Um, I grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. It was not a vacation destination for us. We lived there all year <laughs> round. Um, my parents owned a, uh, still do to this day, own a, a breakfast and, and lunch place. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Cafe. So I grew up working in the family business. Sure. But, but on Cape Cod, there is very little diversity. Everyone, very sadly, looks like me. Sure. Um, I know your viewers can't see me, but it just <laughs> bear with me. Right. Um, but I think what, what helped me to realize that I wanted to get beyond Cape Cod, go somewhere else. Uh, I got involved in the Model UN program as a kid. Okay, all right. Uh, and that, I, I, can, I can definitively point back as a very transformational moment in my life because it exposed me to different cultures, different ideas. Um, just, a, that, just that, because Cape Cod's a man-made island, but yeah. that there was a world beyond there. And that sure. really got me interested in, in wanting to learn more uh, about right. foreign policy. Um, it led me to go to DC where I went to school. I got my first job and my first job was in democracy assistance support. Um, but that's all to say through that work and through that curiosity, I wanted to meet people from different cultures. Sure. Um, I wanted to learn more about what made them tick and what they thought about things that yeah. did they feel the same way that I did. Oh, right. Um, and so that's, you mentioned kind of how do I get these concepts across to the kids? Right. That's why meeting Joseph was so important. We have a phenomenal colleague named Farhat Popal, who's uh, born in Afghanistan, moved here when uh, moved to Europe when she was very young. Uh, eventually, ended up here in the states, uh, and they adore her. Uh, but they get her perspectives on things. Uh, I have another great colleague named June Pyun, who is from South Korea. Um, again. They love her, and they this, they love seeing these different faces, and that's that's something I did not have a chance to experience. So it's it's by meeting people that are that look different than us, but realizing there's nothing really dividing us that right. we can get along. We have similar values, and even if we disagree on stuff, you know, we still like each other. Right, exactly. Um, that's that's what's key, and I that that's what drives me. Not to to interrupt you, but that's one of the things that I'm so passionate about, both on this show and then in general, has been the fact that for me, I, I I'm immensely of the opinion that I think being in Texas gives us a really unique opportunity because you have people from, from a lot of different uh, views and perspectives, especially now that there's so many more people coming into Texas from, from other parts of the country that it's so easy to disagree when you're not sitting face to face and just having a coffee, having a drink, having a meal, when you're able to sit down and break bread with somebody, I can disagree with, more than half of the people I sit across the table with. But at the end of the day, I'm able to value them as a person, understand what drives them and what their concerns are, and empathize with those and say, we have similar views and similar disagreements, but we're all trying to do the right thing in our own way. And I think that gets lost the less we meet with people face-to-face. Absolutely. Um, 
So I, I have a reputation here of being a bit of a fanboy of a guy named Arthur Brooks, <laughs> who is the former uh, president of the American Enterprise Institute, uh, think tank in D.C., and now is uh, a professor at Harvard. But um, I have drunk his Kool-Aid. Uh, I'm going to tell you why it's relevant to what you just said. Sure. But uh, uh, actually, I was on The Strategist for an episode, and Andrew asked me, because I, I always bring up Arthur Brooks. You're getting the secondhand Arthur Brooks. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> But he asked me, so why did you drink the Kool-Aid? What was it? And I think I, I very articulately said, because it makes sense. And then I yeah. didn't follow up on that or explain <laughs> that in any way. Um, <laughs> Arthur Brooks has now dedicated his life uh, to fighting what we call the culture of contempt that he sees mm. in this country, where mm. people are polarized, just as you described. Right. And one of, you know, the, uh, as it will not surprise you, one of the main culprits he identifies is social media, because yeah. we're not viewing each other face to face. We don't look someone in the eye. Um, we're also assigning the worst to yeah. people that disagree with us. Uh, yes. They're evil. They don't disagree with us. They're evil. Yes. Uh, and unfortunately, what's missing today, I think, in our, in our country is a lot of political courage where, yeah. uh, you know, it's, you, you, can't, you can't go against your team, no right. matter if yes. you know deep down. Yes. That's not yes. wrong. That's wrong. Yes. Um, but the way Arthur Brooks puts it is you can't insult anyone into, into agreement. Right. Exactly. So you, what you have to do is you have to, you, well, <laughs> this, is, this is what I love. He basically says the answer to this is, is choosing, making a choice that you're going to love people. Right. That this is, this is how you, you're going to get past this. You're going to make a conscious, conscious effort to love those who are your enemies or who you disagree with or who you might consider evil. Um, because there's, there's a scientific chemical reason for this that it, you know, it triggers endorphins in your brain or whatever, whatever the term may be right. that, that starts to change your thinking. Um, and he, he tells this story about, you know, he's, he's a conservative guy, he's a center right guy, but he talks about going to political rallies, um, and you know, for, for conservative, for Republicans. And basically they'd get all the red meat there when they're, they're rallying, but then he'd come on the stage and be kind of like, who's this guy? Right. <laughs> and he tried to take a radically different approach and be like, well, it's okay to disagree. This is how we get better ideas. Right. And I think someone in the audience, he tells it much better, but yells out, but they're evil. We can't trust these, these leftists. Right. And what this sparked in his mind was he grew up in Seattle in a, in a more liberal household sure. or a left-leaning household. And he said, well, you're, you're describing my father. You're describing my mother. Right. Um, and they're not evil. And so this kind of, I think this hell helped him to go on this, this crusade that he's currently on this quest that he, to, to help people come together. And he says, it's not just it, love. Love is the key. We're not just tolerating people. Right. We're not just uh, accepting them. We're not just being civil to them. And he uses the example of, uh, you know, I don't tolerate my wife. And if you do, you're, you're not in a good position, right? <laughs> right. You, you love them. <laughs> right. Uh, and if you take that to its inevitable conclusion, uh, meaning, you know, who are the people that we love? Right. And, and the, uh, he has a book that you should read, uh, love, uh, love Your Enemies. The inevitable conclusion of that is you love your enemies. And who does that mean? Uh, it's, it's someone that you adamantly disagree with on a political issue that you think is extremely important. Is it, is it a terrorist? Is it someone who subscribes to Nazi ideology? And I think Arthur Brooks, and I, I have to agree with him, would say yes. You know, you, you, you can disagree with the ideology they've taken. Sure. But the person you have to love, and that's right. the only way that you're going to make a change. Maybe true. it doesn't happen with everyone, but... Right. Anyway, that, that kind of hit home for me. No, absolutely. And I was, I was having this conversation with someone the other day. And if I have said on the podcast, I apologize. I don't believe I have. But uh, I, I was talking about how, you know, back in the day, right, 
when before there was social media, you had to just deal with the people that were around you. Like you didn't have the luxury of if you wanted, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't think this will be a surprise to any of the listeners, but I'm a fairly uh, left leaning person. And if I wanted to get with people that uh, fundamentally agreed with everything that I uh, thought was true and subscribed to, I'd have to drive up north somewhere <laughs> to go meet them. And that's I'm not, I mean, I'm lazy. Everybody's lazy. They don't want to do that. Right. So I gotta, I gotta find a way to talk to people that I'm around my family members, my friends who don't necessarily agree with everything, but we're able to have a civil conversation Mm -hmm. and I'm able to say, this issue is important to me. And this is why I feel this approach makes the most sense. And they would say, okay, here's the problems I see with that. This is why I would approach it in this way. And we would able to, to, we could talk about the problems about it. But at the end of the day, we go, we both agree this is a problem. We just have different ideas on how to arrive Absolutely. at a conclusion. And then we're able to still, you know, hug each other and talk to each <laughs> other and still be friends. But now you have the luxury of, if you don't like this person, you never have to talk to them. You can go find a whole group of people online that agree with everything you have. And you're just in an echo chamber and you no longer have to diversify your perspective. And that's dangerous if you don't step out of that from time to time and get to know people face to face love your enemies, as Arthur Brooks would say, and really figure out that, hey, we're all trying to do the same thing and we're just talking about it in different ways and we have different perspectives. Amen. And if we can realize that, it's okay to disagree. And I, Dale Hansen was on the podcast and talked about two senators who, yes. who <laughs> argued back and forth and, and at the end of the day, they would say, hey, do you still like bourbon? Uh, do you still like whiskey? Let's go get a drink. All right, that was a good, uh, was a good we hashed that out. All right, let's go, let's do it again tomorrow. And he's like, you don't, he's like, you don't see that now, both um, individually with people and you rarely see it uh, politically speaking because to your point, you can't go against your quote unquote team right. and people feel like when they do step out, like Senator John McCain would from time to time, you would get vilified for it. And that's not what should happen. People should be able to say, I disagree with this. I agree with this approach and this is the way forward and it's okay to vote this way or that way or to abstain depending on what the issue is. Right. And that, that doesn't, that shouldn't matter so much of, oh, you went against the blue team or the red team. It's like, come on, we're all, we're all in the same country. We're all trying to do the right thing. Oh, this is a. I'm gonna put my soapbox away. <laughs> no, I like I feel, the soapbox. I, Thank I, you. I, I, uh, my wife is tired of hearing about the political talk, so she'll be glad that I was able to get, talk about it on on the public forum. So there we go. Uh, but I want to I want to kind of pivot a little bit into a piece that you wrote back in October called "South Park Was Right About China Censorship." Right. And you're you're talking about the need to. Um, so within the piece, you're talking about the need to uh, or the the ask to uh, you saw from like the NBA specifically supporting Hong Kong's protests about wanting to have democracy and wanting to kind of go against the communist regime and really institute this idea of democracy in a different way to approach the governing system and structure within China. And then seeing that immediately shut down and shut down across the board, being censored and, and someone putting holding a sign in the stands like Google. Uh, Uyghurs. Thank yes. you. Yes. And that was the uh, specific uh, Islamic group, minority group within China that are in internment camps? Uh, correct. Because, okay. because of their religion. Gotcha. That's right. And so, and then those signs were taken down because they were no political ideologies. And, and you pointed out that, well, just saying Google this, not saying the sports is, but one should Google this, like that censoring. And then South Park did the, did the episode about that, yeah, right? That's right. right. So can you talk a little bit more about the, that piece? I know you've had um, other pieces kind of similar, but that one really st- stuck with me because it's so true. And talking about how China earlier is not this grand utopia, but right. it seems like one step further away from North Korea. And then like, kind of talk about your perspective about China, your perspective about that piece, and then also kind of what. Um, I, I do have a follow-up question. I guess I'll just go ahead and ask it now. Sure. Where do you feel is the line between, we'll talk about America, United States of America as a country, a whole institution. Where do you feel is the line between supporting 
like say in supporting Hong Kong's fight and choice for democracy versus, um, uh, what did I say, getting, um, uh, versus interfering. So where, where's the line between supporting, vocally supporting, publicly supporting versus actively interfering? Right. There's so much here. Sure. No, I know. <laughs> I hit you with all three of those right off the bat. Uh, let me, let me start by saying this. I, what I really appreciate kind of, kind of making lemonade out of lemons. I think what happened with the NBA was I think this woke a lot of people up as to why freedom abroad affects us here at home um, and, and matters of democracy and human rights. And one of the biggest struggles I think I found in my work is how do I, how do I make the average American care about this? And I don't think, I don't think that they don't care. Right. I think they do. I think, I think the American people are compassionate. But I think we, we talked about it earlier. You know, there are people who think about getting food on the table. They think about going to their work. They think about supporting their kids. And I get those are their priorities. No, no doubt about it. But still, how do I, how do I grab someone and make them say, this, this affects you? you know? right. and, and there's reasons for morality. There's reasons for um, uh, economic interests of the right. United States. There's reasons for national security. But in the example of China, what I think we're seeing right now, and I think I think many uh, in the freedom and democracy world agree, is is China trying to reshape kind of the global norms uh, to benefit itself. Um, and that, I think I think that ties into another question you were you were asking in terms of well, how is that different from what the United States does essentially in terms of supporting democracy uh, movements around the world? So so let me first say, you know, I think when it comes to something like freedom of expression. I think we're feeling that 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 push from China directly in the United States. We saw it with the NBA. Um, you know, the I think the NBA and or the arenas where they play, we're feeling the push to take away these signs. Right. Um, I, that's just that seems outrageous to me. I, yeah. I get it. It was an existing policy, so I can't I can't fault them too much. But I, I don't find too much political about Google Uyghurs. Right. Um, we see it in schools. Uh, there are things called Confucius Institutes that the Chinese government has uh, funded. They're, they're, seen, they're controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And they're seen as cultural institutes for learning Chinese history, culture, language. But they have, uh, they have, a, they have an, an attachment to them. Um, they tend to go to kind of mid-range schools in the United States um, where, they are, uh, where those schools don't have as, as a reliable flow of funding. And mm. so the Chinese government brings that funding with the, with the uh, bringing of one of these Confucius Institutes. But if someone wants to have a conversation about the Uyghurs or Tibet and the Dalai Lama right. or even Tiananmen Square, which yeah. is years past now, yeah. that becomes an issue. And you start to see some of the officials at the Confucius Institute who report to the Chinese Communist Party raise a stink about this. Mm. And, I, I, you know, there was a bipartisan uh, Senate report on on this issue, um, and essentially what they found was, you know, sometimes finances would be kind of dangled in front of these universities. Say, I think you you want to shut this down. Oh, so wow. uh, you see it in our movies too. I'm yeah. a huge movie buff. Yeah. We talked about it at the right, beginning. Right. Um, uh, you know, something as simple as the Taiwanese flag, which China claims as one of its own, but right. Taiwan is a strong and independent democracy according to the United States and in practice. Yep. Um, uh, Hollywood scripts are rewritten. I think it was a Top Gun sequel uh, oh. that's being produced, and yeah, there was yeah. a Taiwanese flag on the jacket, and there was Chinese funders for the film, and my understanding is the flag was removed. Wow. Uh, and that's what South Park was essentially talking about, gotcha. how, it's, how it's interfering and, and censoring kind of our, our modes of entertainment. So yeah. I, I know it sounds petty compared to morality issues or economic security and security issues, but 
I value my yeah. right to entertainment and to express myself freely. Right. Um, so I think that's, that's a concern. Now, uh, we actually had a great conversation with this, sorry, shameless plug, on The Strategist <laughs> with some groups from, uh, called the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is run by some great people at the German Marshall Fund that looks at what they call malign foreign influence. Uh, and essentially that's these authoritarian regimes trying to undermine our democratic system and way of life. And you see this on social media. Um, but essentially, uh, we talked about the differences between uh, U.S. support for dem democracy movements and, and what, what the Chinese or the Russians or the Iranians or even the North Koreans are, are trying to do. And what it boils down to is this. Uh, the United States has a long history uh, in the, in the post-World War II mm. world of not, not always well. Uh, let's be sure. very up clear. We're sure. not perfect, but trying to help democratic movements around the world. Sure. So this is not a new phenomenon. Right. Um, and I think it's an important decision that, that, that democracy support is not... I think, I, unfortunately, a lot of people think about boots on the ground or military intervention. Sure. That is not what it is. Um, it's support for people who want to be free, who want to build institutions that represent uh, their beliefs, uh, to be governed fairly, to, uh, to listen to their concerns. Uh, it's building uh, education infrastructure. It's building uh, physical infrastructure in the country, like roads and bridges. Sure. Um, it's it's uh, giving tips and and teaching people how to best uh, use good governance practices. Okay. Um, and so what the United States does when it offers this support, even through through either government organs or there's a huge, there's a very vibrant and robust uh, non-governmental group that actually used to work for uh, that are funded through a, a group called the National Endowment for Democracy, who will work with anybody who wants to work with us. So that's I think that's a difference that you'll see sure. between what I call malign foreign influence right. and U.S. democracy support. Uh, Malign foreign influence has a, a chosen winner. They want to support someone. Got it. They are not offering their assistance. It's, it's purposely to undermine a system that's in place. Sure. U.S. support at its, at its best and how it mostly functions is giving everyone the opportunity to build a form of government that helps them to express their ideas and desires and to pursue a life with opportunity and happiness. So it's almost as if the U.S. is, is acting as consultants for these countries. In some, in some outlets, in some yeah, outlets. absolutely. Okay. Um, the other the other places I would look to is, well, I think that's that's the main difference. There are a few that I think are escaping me off the top of my it's head, okay. but if they come to me, I will, I will, I will mention them. It's all good. Um, Did I answer all your questions? Yeah, I, I, I think so. No, this is, it's, it's fascinating to me because I think, I think in general, as, as a country, the United States is always, is always fascinating because of our origins and, and how we were structured and, and breaking away from Britain and, and forming our own democracy and then trying to help others, not always to the best, but, but, doing, our, but doing what we feel is right and, and trying to aid different countries and then still having our own growing pains from time to time internally. And, and I think it's always fascinating to me going to other countries and then talking about, right. about America and, and how... We are, I mean, I mean, let me tell a story. I studied overseas in London in 2008, in the fall of 2008, mm -hmm. so right during the, the election between President Obama and Senator McCain. Right. And I was, when I was found out as a Yank, I'll say that, <laughs> um, I was, the only questions people wanted to ask was about 
politics. So they wanted to know, what state are you from? Are you from a red or a blue state? And I'd say, I'm from Texas. You're from a red state. Got it. And it's like, okay, well, we're a little bit more nuanced than that. But they were fascinated by the political structure and the divide and, and how we were broken up. And they wanted to talk about President Bush a ton, especially because I was from Texas. And, and then the actual election at the American embassy, well, all over Britain, there were watch parties. Mm -hmm. And it was bigger than I've seen ever here. And especially at the embassy, there was huge party and a big shindig. And to me, it was, it was a foreign concept. I'm like, this is what we do every, every four years. This isn't new, right? right? We have elections all the time, but to them it was fascinating. And, and so I took that perspective and I took a political science class where we compared Britain, America, and German government. And it was interesting to me in that, in that part where I said, you know, I've always thought our political system could be better. But then comparing it against two other political systems, I went, uh, I kind of feel like ours is good in the sense that it's set up, how did I, how did I word this? It's set up knowing like, uh, we're, we all suck and we're trying to make sure that somebody doesn't run away with this. So let's all check, check each other and, and work towards a common good. Right. And other governments, it seems that that may not always be the first thought of like, ah, people are fine. Uh, well, let's hold that. And so coming back, what I've always been fascinated about, this is a long roundabout way to say how good we do have it here in the country. And, and whenever times are bleak, and even though we can do a lot better to talk to our fellow person and get to know different perspectives, I think we do take a lot for granted at times, and it, it's it's easy to get sucked in when you're when you're right in the middle of it. Absolutely. But I think one thing that you've kind of showed me here, and that the the institute is doing, is working to give you that perspective of we do have a good here in America, and we want to be able to do good work for others in the country and outside of the country if they want us to. And I think that's what so resonates so well with me on that level. And so is there, as we segue into the last segment, is there any lasting bit of advice or stories that you would have for listeners who may be bleak and, and chicken littling, skies falling? Um, what would be some perspectives you would want to leave them with? Okay. So let me tell a story that I, I think I debated if I was going to tell this or not. Sure. It's about my, my daughter. Okay. Um, it is, it is gained somewhat of a cult following among some of my colleagues that I've told it. So maybe I'm <laughs> overselling it right now, but uh, it's going to seem bleak, but I think, I think the end, well, you'll see what you think. All right. I'll hold tight. So my, my middle child, um, who is, is a sweet kid, uh, was in half price books with my wife. I wasn't there. I heard this secondhand and they're, they're walking through the children's section and my wife says, uh, there's like a, there's a, there's a shelf with all these children's biographies of interesting people from history. Sure. And there's Martin Luther King Jr. And she goes, oh, look, look at this book of Martin Luther King Jr. Would you like to read this? And so my blonde haired, blue eyed little girl yelling in the full bookstore says, oh, I hate Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and of course, people spin around to oh, see right. who the little girl is right. and who her parents is. Right. <laughs> uh, and my, my wife, bless her, just not knowing what to say, just kind of gets said, okay, sweetheart, let's leave now. <laughs> I think that's fair. So, so that's, that's the bleak part, and we're going to get a little bleaker, and then, then I think we're going to get okay. good. Okay, all right. Um, <laughs> we were at the dinner table a few months ago. I uh, had not thought about the Martin Luther King Jr. in some time. Somehow he comes up sure. during the conversation. There is little little girl right there, says, oh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, so, so we said, okay, everyone time out. What, what is going on here? Right. What, what is your problem with Martin Luther King Jr.? Where, right. where are you getting this? 
And she says, you know, he started the civil war. He wanted to take away people's rights. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, we, we stopped and we had a coming to Jesus moment. And we was like, no, no, sweetheart. No, he was actually, who we would call civil rights activists and he was helping people find their rights. And she kind of goes, oh, but the point of that story, I think, <laughs> is that I think I'm hopeful that our children have this sense of right and wrong. And, and even if they misplace it or they misunderstand right. what's going on, right. Uh, and I think we have, a, as, as parents, have a duty to foster that and cultivate it and, and make them understand these concepts. But deep down, they have this concept that, you know, people should be respected. People have rights. Um, uh, and I think that's what we believe here at the I know we believe it here at the Bush Institute, that people desire to be free. Um, right. And that's, that's something that's not given by governments. It's something that just comes naturally uh, to being born as a human being. Right. Um, so I think, I think seeing that in action in my own children, again, as ever, ever mis misinformed as it was, uh, was really inspiring for me. That's awesome. I love it. Well, now we're going to transition into my favorite part of the segment, the dad joke of the week. It is a segment where I hurl jokes at my unsuspecting guests to try and get them to laugh while the audience groans, but I can't hear the audience. I can only hear my guests, so it works out for me. Uh, but I always like to surprise the guests first and say, uh, ask them if they have any dad jokes they'd like to offer up. So Chris, do you have any dad jokes you'd like to offer up? Well, I might've done my homework. Right <laughs> so not so unsuspecting. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting scientific, uh, exploration actually. Um, and I just learned, I was reading a book and I, I learned, uh, I was reading the section on elephants and it, it may seem obvious, but let me ask you, why is it that you never see elephants hiding in trees? I'm not sure. Why? Well, because they're very good at hiding because you see why w you wouldn't see the elephant, the two ton <laughs> elephant in a tree because he's hiding so well in a tree. It's important that you explain the dad joke. That's, I think that's a key element of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you don't explain it, is it really a dad joke? It is not. It's just a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I, I actually, uh, <laughs> my father-in-law got a book of dad jokes and that was in it. And I don't know why, but it just, I, I kept rereading. I'm like, huh. And I reread it again. And it's like, I, I, I like this one. <laughs> it's just like, I mean, yes, of course. I wouldn't. Okay. All right. Well, very good. <laughs> Do you I would love to hear yours though. Sure. I, I, <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, I would say, sorry, mine aren't very good, but they're dad jokes. Are they ever good? They're just, uh, they, they exist. Awfully right? good. Right. That's <laughs> All right. So, um, uh, Chris, I wanted to tell you about this, uh, situation that happened last weekend. My wife asked me to get six cans of Sprite from the grocery store, but I realized when I got home that I had picked seven up. <laughs> Thank seven you. up. Seven up. Not yes. Sprite. No. Seven <laughs> up. Oh no. Seven of the Sprite. Did, uh, did I miss that? No. No. <laughs> Um, uh, so Chris, uh, I would like to, I would like you to, to know, um, uh, why do nurses like red crayons? Why do nurses like red crayons? I don't know. Uh, sometimes they have to draw blood. <laughs> uh, they need to, <laughs> yeah, all right. I got one last one for you. <clears throat> why is it that Peter Pan is always flying? Why would Peter Pan be always flying? I don't know. Ah, because he never lands. <laughs> never lands, just like that joke. All right. Well, Chris, if people want to follow you and see what you or the Institute are up to, what is the best way for them to do that? So you can follow me on Twitter at Chris James Walsh. Um, you can also follow at the Bush Center, which I think is at the Bush Center on Twitter. Um, they're on Facebook as well. Uh, I realize I never answered your question about all that we do here. So if you want to check out the human, what the Human Freedom Initiative sure. is up to, you can go to our website there <laughs> and find perfect. it. That's perfect. I will link all of this to the show notes. So if you are on the website, it's right there. If you're listening, you can just scroll down in your 
feed. If you have an Android app, if you have an Apple, uh, I'm not sure what it looks like because I have a Samsung. So there we go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, I usually get dragged for that, but I just figured I would uh, put it out there. My so. Korean friends would appreciate that. Right. Well, there we go. I like it very much. So, all right. Well, Chris, thank you so much. We do need a hashtag for this episode. Should we go with hashtag freedom? I love it. All right. Perfect. Well, until, uh, so Chris, thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank or you. for letting me stop by, I should say. Anytime. And uh, listeners, we'll be back next week with more great content. But until next time, hashtag freedom and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast, or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V O K A L now.com. <laughs>